Um, we're also kind of walking in the book of Ephesians. And so if you are a guest, we don't have a really special baby sermon today or anything like that. We are just marching through the book of Ephesians. We started way back in the fall, and we've been working through like two verses at a time. We have a real high value around here for the Word of God. Like we want... Uh, to know it and to study it and to understand it. We want to work through it. We want to deal with its nuances. We want to figure out what God has for us. We want to understand it. And so the way that we teach and preach here is we, we really exegete Scripture. We try and get you into a love affair with it. And so we've been doing that with Ephesians. Paul's epistle to the Ephesians that he basically wrote to this crown jewel church of his. And it was sort of the most educated and most um, kind of empowered churches of all the ones that Paul planted. The Ephesians were that because he had spent so much time there, almost three full years teaching in Ephesus on a daily basis. And the, the church was full of this great teaching and and. It was sort of this letter that Paul wrote them saying, now it's time for you all, as I'm waiting in, in prison in Rome, for you to go and live these things. And he basically spent the first three chapters talking about theology, all about kind of why these things unfold the way they do, how we know Christ, how Christ has saved and redeemed us. And then the second part of the book is moving into this practice, from, from theology to practice, from truth to how we begin to live these things out. But the crux of the book of Ephesians is this. That God in his infinite, incredible wonder uh, has taken his son and put him here on earth and allowed him to walk sinlessly and then had him crucified and raised him from the dead for one singular purpose. And that is that all people who profess faith in Jesus Christ, whether they're Jew or whether they're Gentile, meaning anyone that's non-Jew, may become one new people. And that one new people is called the church. And the church is made up of people from all walks of life, Jew and Gentile, male and female, slave and free, from all over, wherever. If you profess faith in Christ, you are one. And this one, this church, this reconciliation that God has done through Christ becomes the instrument by which he will take the fullness of Christ to the world. That's the entire move of Ephesians. And so in this story is this, this group of people that are so vastly different that have been thrust together and meshed into one. And for the past five weeks, we've been looking at the first like 17 verses of Ephesians as Paul talks about unity and how we are called to be together as one. And not for the sake of just being unified or being tolerant or getting along or not arguing as a church and no one shouting in the household of God, but this oneness, because when we experience it, we will have, as we talked about last week, spiritual growth and maturity as community, and we get the full measure of Christ's glory as we take the gospel to the world. The church becomes that instrument. So Paul has been doing all of those things in this letter. So catching up some folks that, that may not have been here with us. And this morning, he's going to be shifting a little bit more out of chapter 4 to begin to talk about how we actually live this out. But before we get there in the next couple of weeks, he's going to tell us about a problem. He's actually going to give the church a command, and then he's going to tell us about a problem we've got to address. And it's significant. And what's actually frightening frighteningly relevant today, uh, how stark this problem is. But before we can even begin to think about how to live these things out, live this unity out, live these pieces out, he's going to say there's a problem in the church, and I'm going to address it for you, and we've got to change it. And so as we get ready to do that, I want you to take your Bible, I want you to flip to Ephesians 4, 17, 18, and 19, three verses today. We're going to move through it kind of quickly. There's a lot of little moving parts here, um, but we're going to be there, and let's take a moment, let's just pray. Let's ask God to teach our hearts, and then we're going to dive into this command and problem that we face as the church. Lord, this Sunday is filled with all kinds of great things. Lord, we are, are, are dedicating babies and children, and we're celebrating life 
Lord, we are celebrating that as parents we can't do this alone and we need the community, but we're also recognizing in that celebration that, that we desperately need you. Lord, we desperately need you. We need you to not only help us raise our kids, we need you to help us understand life and truth and what's right and wrong. We want you to orient our children's heart to those things. As we're going to see today, Lord, without your word, without your guidance, morality is, it's up and down. It's a circular thing. It has no reference points. Uh, if we think without knowing the light, without knowing Christ, we think in futility. And so, Lord, I pray that this morning as we celebrate the, the promise that you make us as parents to, to raise children, that you will walk with us and lead us and never forsake us, Lord, that we, we ask you, God, as we open your word to do the same thing, to teach our hearts, that we can't expect to raise children that know Christ if we're not walking in the word ourselves. We can't expect to raise children that have moral grounding on God's word if we're not in the word ourselves. And we can't be a community that promises parents that we will walk alongside them if we're not grounded in scripture. And so, Lord, anchor our hearts this morning to your word. Take a moment as you sit here this morning um, and just ask God to teach you. doesn't have to be anything fancy. doesn't have to be anything wordy. Just in your heart, just kind of whisper, Lord, teach me something new. I mean, I'm here. I'm sitting down. I'm not going anywhere for a little while. Might as well teach me something. So ask the Lord just to teach you. Not through me, through his word. And take a moment and pray for someone beside you. We do this every week. We firmly believe that everything that unfolds here on Sunday morning is just not about you. So pray for somebody around you. Pray for your spouse or maybe you don't even know this person. Or just pray that God would move in their hearts. Be in the habit of praying for other people. Pray that God would move in them this morning. Lord, we turn our entire morning over to you. We release all of our anxieties and our worries and our fears and all the things that have to happen with lunch that's unfolding after this or whatever those things may be. And just for the next moments, we give you our heart. And we ask you to teach us and help us be the church and to root out this problem that Paul's going to address from the depths of our soul. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So he kind of does this whole 16 verses about unity, and then he stops for just a minute. And if you were with us last week, you'll remember we talked a lot about unity as this idea of, of leading us into spiritual growth and maturity as a community to, to experience a full measure of Christ. And, and he pauses for a moment, and he's getting ready to launch into, now this is how you're going to have to live this out. And he stops, and he basically says, there's something I have to tell you to quit doing. And he's writing this letter very specifically to, a, to the church. This isn't just a kind of a letter that's cast out there. He's writing to the believers in Ephesus. All of those who profess faith in Jesus Christ, whether they're Jew or Gentile, whether they're from this side of the tracks or that side of the tracks or look like this or look like that or speak this language, doesn't matter. Anyone that's a part of this community that is called a Christ follower, that has professed faith in Christ, he's writing them this letter. He's saying, I need to tell you something. And he gives them this command. And we're going to look at the command and the problem this morning. So let's take a look at Ephesians 4, 17 through 19. And this is what, what Paul says. He says, so I tell you this, and I insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do. In the futility of their thinking, they are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, 
They have given themselves over to sensuality and to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. So Paul takes a moment and he says, before I dive into how you need to do this, I have to ask you something. In fact, I'm not going to ask you something. I'm going to command something of you. And he says, I'm going to insist on it in the Lord. So he says, listen, before I even get into the greatness of what we need to do differently, I have to insist that you stop doing something. And he says, so I insist in the Lord that you no longer live like the Gentiles live. Now, he's not talking about the Gentile Christians, right? Because we know now from our letter in Ephesians that there's actually really no such thing anymore. There are real no Jewish Christians and there are no Gentile Christians. There is one new race. And that new race is anybody who professes faith in Jesus Christ has been grafted into God's family and there are only believers. There are only Christ followers. There are only Christians. There are not Methodists, Presbyterians, Baptists, non-denominational, whatever, whatever. They're, those things are just designations that humans give. There are really only believers and non-believers. We are part of one incredible giant family of God, which we've been talking about for months around here. And he says, I no longer, I insist that you no longer live as the Gentiles live. So he's basically saying, using Gentiles as a word to, to say all these that don't believe in Jesus. So... And he kind of designates that because even the Jewish people who didn't believe in Jesus, they had a sense or an understanding of God's, maybe God's majesty or who the one true God might be, but they didn't know him manifested through Christ. But nonetheless, he just assumes that all of these people that are non-believers, he uses this label Gentiles, and he's going to do that for a little while. So he says, I have to insist on something. No longer live like the Gentiles live. So that's the command. But the command is issued because there's obviously a problem. Right? Paul's not going to insist on something if there's not a problem to be had. Right? He's not like, hey, be careful. The Gentiles will lead you astray, so make sure you don't live like they live. That's more of a warning. But the command is no longer live like the Gentiles do, which means that some were living that way. That's the problem, right? The problem is actually wrapped up in those words, no longer. I insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live, meaning that some in the community were actually living this way. They were true believers, true followers of Christ, yet they were living as non-believers. Now, what does that mean? If Paul stops enough to say, look, we got a problem in the context of the church, and that is that some of you who know and profess Christ, who are true believers, who have given your life to Jesus, who are followers of his, you are living like the world. You are living like non-believers in the heart of a believer. So it begs the question, well, how do the Gentiles live? What is it that is happening here that Paul is saying you can't do or don't do? What is the problem in living like a Gentile? Well, you're in luck. Paul is going to lay it out. And it's deep, and there's a bunch of pieces to it, and we're going to move through it relatively quickly because I want you to see what he's getting at. But the command is no longer live like the Gentiles, the problem is because some of you are, and it's going to destroy you, and it's going to destroy the church. And so here are the six pieces to this puzzle that he lays out. He says the first thing the Gentiles do is they have a futility of thinking, right? 
So verse 17, if you look at it right there, I tell you this, I insist on the Lord, you must no longer live as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their thinking. So futility, or something futile, is uh, worthless, pointless, right? It has no meaning. Something that's futile, or futility, futility, a way of thinking, is a pointless or worthless way of thinking. But the Greek word there is the word mateos, which actually means, and has this Hebrew connection to this idea of vanity means you have this inflated view of yourself, this pride, this thing. And so when you talk about the idea of futility, when it comes to thinking, it's this idea of this worthless, pointless, inflated view of my own understanding and thinking when it comes to the world. So the Gentiles were living in a way that was had a thinking attached to it that was worthless and pointless. Why? Because it was centralized on myself. It was centralized on what I think or understand. It was centralized on my own definitions of right or wrong or what is moral or what is not. And that way of thinking is pointless and worthless. So it basically says that the the non-believing world has a way of thinking that is fully broken. It's fully broken. The Gentile thinks in this vanity, in this pride, that everything on some level revolves around their understanding of it or who they are or how they can piece it together or what their definitions of right or wrong is. And it's effort and it's worthless and it's pointless and it's useless. It's vain. It's futile. And he says this futility of thinking has some real consequences to it. And so it begins to unfold this thing. He says, the Gentiles, the non-believing world, they have this futility, this vain, this prideful way of thinking, right? That does what? What does it lead to? It says, they are darkened in their understanding. So this futility of thinking leads to a darkness of understanding or a darkened understanding. And again, like that word there that we get, the futility there, the word understanding, the Greek word there, is the word dionia, which essentially really just means their ability to comprehend and make sense of. They have a darkened way of understanding or ability to make sense of things. Now that word darkened is an intentional word that Paul uses because it's not about saying they can't, it's about saying that they try and make sense of something through darkness. In other words, They don't understand life through the light of Christ. Who is the light, right? Well, John 1 tells us that Jesus, the word of God, the logos, is the light of life. And so futility of thinking, this worthless, pointless, vain, me-centered thinking, actually leads us to this place of a darkness of understanding, meaning I can't understand the world rightly because I see it through darkness. And I'm not talking darkness just in terms of like evil. I'm talking darkness in terms of cloudiness. Right? Have you ever done something right at dusk? And I used to do this growing up all the time, or when my, when my son was growing up all the time, we'd throw the baseball all the time in the afternoon or in the yard or whatever. And you'd throw in the afternoon, and as he got older, he threw harder, and he threw harder. And as it got darker and darker, I got older and older, and it got harder to see. And he's like, no, we're good. And I'm like, we're not good any longer. And he'd have to throw it and have to measure it up against the sky. But the darker it got, the harder it got to make out that ball, right? If you've ever done anything like that, you're like, it's harder to make out those things as life gets darker or as darkness encroaches. If you're ever trying to squint or look through the little dusk to find whatever that thing might be down the road, it's not like looking through it in the broad daylight. 
the futile, prideful, vain way of thinking about life actually clouds our understanding because we're squinting through darkness. And he says the Gentile, right, they live in a way that is driven by this me-centered thinking, and they're trying to make sense of the world while squinting through darkness. And you know what? It doesn't make sense. They have a darkness of understanding. In other words, they can't make sense of the world rightly because they're not looking through the light. They are looking through the lens of me, through the lens of vanity, through the lens of pride, through the lens of kind of a worthless approach to seeing the world. That's why Jesus was so radical, because he looked at everything so differently. First must be last, last will be first. All these things that Jesus did were a way of toppling culture. The light does something, right? So he says, the first thing he says in this Gentile futility way of thinking, it has a darkness of understanding which leads to something else. This is a progression that's happening here, right? So what does that darkness of understanding do? Their futility of thinking, the darkened hearts and their understanding leads to separation from God because of their ignorance and the hardening of their hearts. So what happens is that you begin to live in this way of futility of thinking, this prideful, vainful way of thinking. It leads us to a darkness of understanding because I'm trying to understand the world through the lens that isn't the light. And it leads me to a separation from God. Because I, my mind is no longer or has not been transformed by Christ. And therefore, I cannot see the world the way that Christ sees it. And therefore, I am separated from God. His worldview, this eternal worldview that God gives through the Holy Spirit is not my worldview. I am separated from him because my heart is hardened by my lack of understanding because I've allowed the world to make my definitions around me. Paul's saying that the Gentile, the non-believer, has this me-centered thinking, right? That leads to this darkness of understanding. It leads to a separation of God and a hard and calloused heart, which leads to even more difficult trouble. Look at verse 18. It leads to this. It leads to a loss of sensitivity. They are darkened in their understanding. They are separated from God because of their ignorance, having, through the hardening of their hearts, verse 19, having lost all sensitivity. So when you begin to live in a way that is driven around yourself and your own understanding and your own definitions of right or wrong or what's moral or what's not, and you have a lack of understanding of really seeing the world because you're gazing through darkness, squinting through all of these things that the world puts up as signposts without being able to use the light, the word of God, the Holy Spirit as a guide, the light of life. It leads me to the separation of God from God in which I don't use him or know him as a reference point for anything. My heart is hardened and it leads me to a loss of sensitivity. Well, what does that mean? Well, the more you're wrapped up in yourself in the world, the more you become less sensitive to the sting of sin. The more we become less sensitive to the things of the world that are morally bankrupt and wrong. Our hearts become calloused, right? Like on your hands. If you ever work outside or do certain things with your hands or if you've ever seen Don's fingers, you play the guitar, they get calluses on them so you can do those things and they don't hurt as much. You know that happens to your heart spiritually. The more you engage in things that are hard and broken and immoral, the more your heart develops resistance to the sting that they're wrong and they just slowly become the norm. You think this is not true? Just look around you. Look at culture. 
the definitions of what is moral and not has had a wild swing, right? I mean, you can't turn on TV or, I mean, anything without running headlong into depravity and immorality. And I guarantee you're desensitized to it because I certainly am. We're desensitized to, to language, to sex, to pornography, to all of these things that culture says, these things are okay, you know. Just define the terms yourself. Just decide what's right for you. And our hearts are calloused. Why? Because we're thinking only about ourselves, what we think is right or wrong through our vanity of thinking. We have a, a darkness of understanding because we're not looking at things through the light. And that leads us to this incredible separation from God. And once we're separated from God, there is no up or down. It's only whatever culture or you say is right, which leads to the hardening of heart and a loss of sensitivity. It should grieve you that some of the things that you see don't bother you. That what our kids are being pressed with at school doesn't make you want to vomit or make your heart turn upside down or make you want to run through the halls screaming, this can't be. The fact that it's become part of our norm is scary. But for the non-believer, they don't even have the ability to reconcile this as non-normal. It's just the story. It's just what's right. And this is what Paul is saying is so dangerous. And that loss of sensitivity actually leads us to something even more dangerous. Look at what he says that loss of sensitivity leads to. So we've lost all sensitivity. They have given themselves over to sensuality and to indulge in every kind of impurity. So once you've redefined all these things and you've engaged in whatever culture or whatever norm has risen, once you've lost the sensitivity to the sting of sin, <clears throat> to the fact that it's really not that bad, not that awful, not that terrible, what happens? Well, the non-believer just gives themselves over to all things that are sensual and impure. Now, our minds immediately go to things, we use words like sensuality or impurity. We tend to think of things that are sexual, and that's certainly true, but that's not really what Paul's getting at here. He's basically talking about anything that pleases me. So the sensuality or the impure things there are the things that, that please me, the, the me-pleasing part of our soul <clears throat> that says, as long as it doesn't hurt someone else, if you like it, it's okay. That's garbage. But that's how the world, the non-believing world, understands right and wrong. It's broken. But what happens is, once you become desensitized to sin desensitized to morality, or even just to what, what God says is right or wrong, and you've done it once or twice, then, well, who cares? I mean, right? I'll just give myself over, essentially, to anything that pleases me. Because what does it matter? I'm not hurting anybody. There's no real victim here, right? I mean, I like it. And so we give ourselves over to all things that are sensual, or that indulge me. And that can include things like, I'll do whatever it takes to protect myself. I'll lie, I'll cheat, I'll steal. Heck, everybody else has got something, might as well take something for myself. Right? You can easily get from this place to cheating on your taxes, and you can easily get from that place to cheating on your wife. Why? Because what does it matter? 
This is the problem with culture and with the world when separated from the light of life. That we have this futility, this vain thinking that leads us to a place of being, a lack of being fully able to even think or understand, right? The separation from understanding because of darkness, this separation from God that leads to a lack of sensitivity, leads to giving myself over to whatever pleases me. And then there's one last horrific, horrific piece. And it, it breaks my heart every time I read it. And this is what he says. Look at verse eight, uh, 19. He says, They have given themselves over to every, every sensuality and to indulge every impurity. And listen to this. And this is gut-wrenching. With a continual lust for more. So once you've given yourself over to whatever this immorality is, this way of thinking like the world. And again, I'm not talking about terrible things. I'm just talking about a way to orient your heart that's not on the Word of God. Once you chase something else and you get it, what you realize quickly is that that doesn't satisfy. Whatever it was, it doesn't satisfy. It doesn't fill. And so what happens? Because you've lost all sensitivity, because you've given yourself over, you just have this continual lust for more. It's never ending. The continual lust for more is, while why, and I say this very cautiously, why Jesus says it's easier for a camel to enter the eye of a needle than a rich person to make it into heaven. Why? Because we will never have enough. That if I lust and live after something worldly and I gain it, it still is not enough. Ask yourself this question, right? If I can only get this raise at work, then life will fall into place. And what happens? You get that raise at work, right? And for about two months, things are a little easier. And then life happens. And you have a baby. And that baby costs a fortune. And that baby turns 16. And they cost a double fortune. And they don't even like you. In fact, you annoy them that you breathe. But they're expensive, and you need another race, right? Nothing ever ends up satisfying. The reality is, is that it's the lie of things like pornography, right? It never leads to something whole. The continual lust for more is a broken cycle of the non-believing mind. And so we chase and we chase and we chase. Now, here's the real tragedy in all this. The real tragedy in all this is this is not this is how non-believers live. That's true. We should know that. The real tragedy at Paul is what Paul says the problem is. He says, some of you in this place, in this church, including in this room today, as believers, this is how you're living. And I'm going to tell you, you can't do it any longer. As true believers, he's actually not saying they're not saved. He's actually saying as true believers, people that have been rescued and redeemed, you are living and thinking in a way that the world does. And it is dangerous for you, and it's dangerous for the church because it leads to nothing. It's centered around you, and it's vanity, and it separates you from being able to understand the world because you're looking at it not through the light but through darkness separates you from God because it leads to frustration and anger because you don't understand these things. Why would this happen to me? Because you're asking all the wrong questions, centered on all the wrong things. And so it leads to this hardening of heart and this lack of, or this loss of, of, of sort of sensitivity 
to the things of God. The things of, of the world no longer pain my heart. They no longer grieve me. I've just accepted them as this is what norm is. And then I give myself over to it and, and I find myself down the road going, well, I guess it's okay then. And we keep fighting for what is more and what is more and we come up empty and we come up empty and we drift away from the anchor point of Scripture. And before we know it, without intending, we are standing in the wilderness and we look at our heart and we go, what happened? I used to long for God's word. I used to love going to church. I used to love being around people. I used to pray and seek the Lord. And now I just feel like my life is just, well, I'm just breathing. And everything is kind of mediocre. And, but I know there's got to be something more. And this is what Paul is saying as he's going, some of you in the church, maybe all of you in the church, you can't live like this. You've been saved. You've been redeemed. Live like a believer. Live like someone who trusts the promises of Christ. So when you put all these things together, right, it leaves us, if we've been dealing with Ephesians, what are some things that we need to do, some anchor takeaway points from all this? Because kind of leaving on this sort of, and then Brandon's going to preach next week and he's going to tell us why it's so great. But I'm not. But these are the things that I think are really remarkable that we need to take away from this. And the first is this, that we've got to fight to be different than the world. This is a real fight, and I'm not kidding about it. It's really serious. You know that this industry has kind of grown out of the ground in the past six years. It's called the social media influence industry, right? So the social media influencer industry is now, in 2022, a $16.9 billion industry. Now, if you're not familiar with what a social media influencer is, the reality is it's a person that uses social media to basically generate... Um, Placement, ad placement, uh, viral views, anything they can for a company to generate ad revenue or revenue. And so they gain a lot of followers, they gain a lot of likes, they do all these things, and then companies will do product placement with them, or they will put things on trend, or they will make things viral, and we begin to watch and engage in these things, and we make marketing choices based on what they're saying, right? It's basically the influencer ideas. We're influencing culture through people. Different way of ad, you know, used to take a billboard out, or you get an ad in the Oklahoman, that was how you influenced people. Very different now. There's a huge industry. By 2026, it's going to be a $70 billion industry. And most of us look at it and be like, oh, man, they're targeting our kids. They're not. They're actually not targeting your kids. The reality is they're targeting you. From the ages of 23 to 38, 58% of all social media influencers admit that they are social media users admit that they look to influencers for advice on music, trends, topics, and politics. So what that means is there's an entire industry out there trying to push you towards what culture says is popular. So what they're geared for, to tell you what top to buy, what makeup to wear, what weed eater works best, right? What cup you should buy, what clubs you should use, what way you should vote, what identity is right, and what is moral. Do you see the progression on how that works? It starts off by going, hey, are these underwear good? I'm going to check them out. Maybe they are. They say they're great. They don't ever fall apart. Oh, really? And that progression leads us down. Oh, I like that kind of thing. That music and that TikTok video was great. I should probably find that song. Down this road to where it's like I hear that voice. I go to that person. I watch all their stuff. And now they make a political or an ideological stance. And I'm attached to what they say. That's why they're called social media influencers. Not guiders or suggesters. 
They want to influence your decisions, and they get paid very, very well to do it. I say all that not to say social media is bad, because go to the Internet to figure out what we need to buy. Absolutely. But I am telling you that if you're not watching and you're not willing to fight for you and your children, it's really easy to get swept up in the world. You've got to fight to be different than the world. Just because the world says it's right does not mean it's right, right? Like we know this is the church, but it's differently, different when you have to live that way. You have to actually fight it. You have to ask yourself this singular, singular question, which is, how does this measure up against the Word of God? If you ask yourself that question on pretty much all things, you're going to come out in one of two places. One, I need to read my Bible more. Or two, it's going to help you make decisions on what's right or wrong. If you don't know what your Bible says about this certain thing, then you need to get in it and discover it. But if you do, then it's going to actually help you go, that doesn't sound right. And I want to fight to be different than the world. All right? It's not that being wealthy or any of these kind of things are inherently wrong. It's that we have to literally step up and measure our life against the Word of God so that we don't give ourselves to it. So the first thing that we've got to do is we've got to be willing to fight to be different than the world. The second thing that we have to do is we have to stay sensitive to the whisper and the voice and the move of God. And we talked a little bit about this last week. The only way you stay sensitive and fight the desensitivity, the only way you do that are really through two things. One, as we talked about last week, through getting in God's word. And two, through prayer. The only way we keep the calluses off our heart is by asking God to peel them off. They are going to naturally form. You can't live life without actually forming some type of callus to anything. No matter what you do, if you cook a lot, your hands are going to be able to hold hot pots. I saw Rhonda back here. She handed me a pot. Well, she's a cooker. That's what she does. She handed me a pot one day. I nearly died. She took it out of my hands with hers and was like, are you all right? I'm like, are you all right? Are you some kind of wizard? She's just holding it. She's like, I, uh, my hands, they hold hot things all the time. I'm like, well, these little delicate things, they don't. The reality is life leads to calluses. It just does. You want God to peel off the ones that are in the wrong places. And so the only way to do that is to, to be active in the Word and be active in our prayer life. We talk about these things a lot. Coming to church once every three weeks, or even if you come every week, is not going to remove the calluses from your heart. Getting involved in a relationship, a deep, real personal relationship with Christ is the only way. I want to know God's word and I want to know his heart. And as God begins to whisper to my soul, he begins to pull those calluses off and I still stay sensitive to the things of God, which helps my understanding. I'm no longer looking at the world through this lens of squinty darkness at dusk. I'm looking through it through the light of life and it just makes sense. Maybe this tragedy is not a tragedy. Maybe this thing that went wrong is not going wrong. Maybe because I trust and believe that God has my whole life in his hands that I see the world differently. So we fight to be different than the world. We fight to stay sensitive, right, to the whisper and the voice and the move of God. And then finally, and this last one here is the one we'll kind of end on, is that we've got to basically be at this place where we don't give ourselves over to anything or anyone but Jesus. And there's one exception. So you want to be at a place in your life where you are not giving yourself over, and I say over by, by handing them who I am, right, to anyone or anything but Jesus. And the sole exception to this is marriage. The Bible is very specific about it. 
It says that in marriage, a husband and wife belong to one another and they give themselves to each other and the two become one flesh. It's actually one of the greatest gifts that we've ever been given in all of following Jesus' life is this idea that I have someone that walks with me, right? Outside of that singular relationship in which you give your whole heart and full trust, life, and care over to another person, there is no one or no, nothing on this earth that you should give yourself to. And I mean that in the most extreme and in the most light way of thinking about it. So in the most extreme, you think about addiction, right? I want to fight to not give myself over to anything. And in addiction, you have literally given yourself over, meaning it has control over me. Now, you didn't do it on purpose. No one wants to get into that, but addiction does that. It, it gains control over you. And whether it's alcohol, drugs, or, or pornography, or food, or whatever it is, any type of addiction means essentially that this thing has control over me. It makes its decisions for me, and I am slave and subject to it. And the only thing the believer should be slave and subject to is Christ. And therefore, this is the extreme which we have to worry about. But it gets incrementally less, but still stays incrementally as dangerous. The truth is, anything that we give ourselves to that has power over us that is not Christ is dangerous. You may not have a full-blown addiction to something, but if it controls your way of thinking, I'm a people pleaser, I want everyone to like me. I want to get at work. I need to be recognized or at least let my boss know I'm doing this. And so I do things to perform for people. I've given myself over to the praise of men, not because I do everything great, but because my heart needs it, because my self-esteem is so low. And so we've given ourselves over to needing the approval of people. You see how this progression works, right? It's not just the horrific it's all of these things that take a place where Christ should be. Fight not to give yourself to anything. Even the jokes, right, that we make in our Christian culture about, you know, oh, I'm, I'm addicted to coffee or, you know, wine or whatever it is. The reality is, is that it's tongue-in-cheek, but it's kind of serious if we have anything in our life that we love and adore and need more than Christ. We play with words, but if you ask yourself in the heart, do I love Jesus like this? It's frightening, truthfully. So all this to lead us to this one singular place. Paul says the church is not exempt from the influence of the world. In fact, if you're not actively fighting against it, it's making its way inside. And so I implore you, in the name of the Lord, to no longer live as the Gentiles do in their prideful, me-driven, vain way of thinking that leads most literally to a darkness of understanding, to a separation of God, to a loss of sensitivity, to giving myself over to the ways of the world with a continual lust for more that leads me only to emptiness all the time. He says the church, sadly, is full of people that are living that way and yet have been fully redeemed. Stop it. Fight it. Fight to be different from the world. Fight to stay sensitive to the things that whisper the move of God. And don't give yourself over to anything or anyone but Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for just the whispers of truth in this passage. It doesn't end on a super high note where everything's great and glorious and amazing. That actually comes next week. But today, it ends in this place of saying, I don't want to be there. 
So Lord, help us fight. Help us fight culture. Help us fight the voices that want to lie to us, that tell us that we're not sufficient or that we're not okay or that we're not good enough. Lord, all of our completeness is found in you alone. It doesn't matter who's mad at us or who's not. And Help us fight the temptations of the world to continually chase more things, right? Better voices, more money, more options, more things. But to find our self-worth in you alone, Christ. If the world tells us what's right or wrong, we've already broken our ability to truly stand in your presence. So, Lord, don't let us think in a me-centered, vain, futile way. Help us be grounded in the word of God. If God's word says it's wrong, it's wrong. Help us be sensitive to it. Peel the calluses off our heart. Lord, we love you. We pray that as we close our time in worship, that would be evident that you would do the work in us that's hard and that we would do the work of following Christ together. Let's stand together and close our time in worship this morning.
rise up with just a simple refrain for all that he's done for you what he's calling you to So Paul says, and, I, and he says essentially to us, like, I insist, therefore, no longer, right? 
No longer live as the Gentiles. No longer live as the world. You've been saved and redeemed and rescued. Live as people who know and trust and follow Christ. Fight to be different from the world. Stay sensitive to the things of God, the whisper, the voice, the move of God, right? Anchor your heart into God's word and in prayer, right? And give yourself to nothing and no one except Christ himself. Go in peace.